The Boy with the White Hair, written and performed by Nick Thurston. Not long before midwinter, in the year 1289, I went to visit my brother in Oathgard for the holidays. The five-day journey from Windsommer was uneventful, but cold, so that by the time our sleigh reached the rim of the Sunnathauden, which in the south they call the Sudden Valley, I was eager to get down to the bottom and warm up. For the wind on the plateau of Evenhold blows hard that time of year and it is not a place to loaf around and admire the view, no matter how fine it may be. The seven great waterfalls which come crashing down from the cliffs had already begun to freeze. By long shadow, they would all be turned to ice. So down we went, in fits and starts, along the crisscross track of the winding road into the valley. I say we because my horse, whose job it was to pull the sleigh, was a dear friend to me. His name was Stuna, after the north wind. Unlike his mythical counterpart, my horse was getting on in years, and a bit fat besides. But mine also had a better temper, and as anyone who has ever ridden a horse before knows, that makes up for quite a bit. By time we reached the bottom, Stuna was steaming, and my stomach was rumbling. We hurried across the plain at the bottom of the valley, passing the numerous hot springs and bathing huts that line the road to the city gates, and saying hello to the merry people we met there. It is tradition in Evenhold to visit these springs and saunas during the short days around Longshadow. At the gates, I asked the watchman where to find my brother's house, for it was new and I had never been there. But even with the watchman's instructions to guide me, I soon lost my way in the snowy streets and found myself riding along near a garden in a nice part of the city with lots of stately stone buildings in it. The castle was just off to my left. Tall, slender towers loomed over me, their parapets disappearing and reappearing behind patches of slow-moving cloud, making the place look enchanted and even vaguely forbidding. But along all the battlements were perched little drifts of snow, and there were witch-pine cobs lit in the windows, and I could hear singing coming from within that made me smile. A group of children was playing in the garden to my right. There were four of them, all boys, dashing among the banks of new-fallen snow from the night before. I thought to ask them if they knew Minka, the builder, and could tell me where he lived. But as I drove nearer, I saw that there was some commotion. Three of the children had caught the fourth and were holding him down in the snow. One of the boys was much bigger than the others. This big, meaty fellow stood over the boy on the ground and began to relieve himself. The boy on the ground writhed and kicked, but the others kept him pinned down on his back. Hey! I shouted, brandishing my driver's whip. 
I'd never even had the heart to use it on the horse, but they didn't know that. Hey! Leave off before I strip your little asses! The boys took off, the fat one falling face first in the snow before he got away. Once I'd sent them packing, I went to the boy on the ground. He sat up in the snow, and I was surprised to see that his hair and eyebrows were as silver as an old man's. He looked to me to be about six or seven years old. You all right? I asked. I'm fine, he said proudly. He looked down at his shirt. It was of fine material, expensive, but had been torn at the sleeve and now soiled. I shook my head. Those bastards shouldn't, I began. But before I could finish, he turned on me. Don't say that, he shouted. His eyes were bright blue and sharp, and there was an angry glare in them. I was taken aback. Why, I'm sorry, I said. I only meant to... But the child stood up and started walking away from me. I could have just let him go, but my heart reached out to him, and besides, I still hadn't gotten the directions I needed. My young friend, I said. I'm looking for Minka, the builder. Do you know where I might find him? At this, the boy stopped and turned back to me. He stared for a few moments and then nodded. Would you be able to point me to his house? If you'd like, you can ride in my sleigh. I bet he'll have a nice warm cup of ketiuld for you when we get there. The boy nodded again and we got in my sleigh. Did they take your coat? I said. He wore only his shirt and a pair of pants, and the day was growing long. But the boy shook his head without looking at me. For the rest of the ride, we did not speak. The boy only stared ahead and pointed either left or right as we slid along the streets. Though it was cold, and though he was wet from the snow and from what the older boy had done to him, he neither shivered nor uttered any complaint. As it turned out, we'd been very close to our destination. After only a few turns, the boy stuck his finger out in the direction of a fine stone building with a yard out front and two big windows, one either side of the door. Cheerful yellow light spilled out of the windows and I could hear laughter coming from within. There were two horses already in the yard. We pulled the sleigh in, and straight away the door swung open. My brother appeared in the doorway, red-cheeked and smiling. His curly hair was in a mess, as always. Well, he cried, beaming at me. Well, well, <laughs> he comes. Oh, and look how chubby you've got. I was about to ask the silver-haired boy in, but before I could make my offer... He leapt down from the seat, and without another word, he went off in the direction we had come. My brother's house was warm and cozy. A big fire was burning in the hearth, and decorations had been set all about. He'd even got himself a pine cob. It was burning away with smokeless yellow flames on the table. 
The two other horses, it turned out, belonged to two of my brother's friends. The first was a wealthy timber merchant, whose name was Barbo. He had come up from the riverlands, and, once seeing the endless pine forests rolling away toward the western hills of our hold, decided to stay. He worked with the Velt Wardens to make sure he stayed out of the Forbidden Lands, and sold the finest timber money can buy anywhere in Elgaskond. He was tall, skinny, and very attentive. His skin was light brown, his eyes bright and bird-like. The second horse belonged to an old man, who had once been my brother's master. After hearing his name, I recognized him, and admitted with a start that I didn't know it was him after so long a time. He laughed, and said that while good granite could weather the years without a wrinkle, he wasn't so lucky. His hair was thin and wispy, and white as a cloud. My brother's wife, Eula, had been up since before sunrise, baking hazelnut crescent breads, and had been out giving them away around the neighborhood when I got there. She came in red-cheeked from the cold, swaddled in a rather lumpy green scarf, and squealed when she saw me. The moment she came in the door, the house finally felt full. After everyone had arrived, we sat around the table and tried to be patient. Eula led us through the Sakwakani. It had been a good year for my brother's business, and there was much to be thankful for. By the time we'd finished the prayer, our mouths were watering, for Minka had sacrificed one of his shaggy mountain cows to Niflog, who was his birth god, and we could smell the roasting meat in the next room, drowned in wine and spices, as if it were already in our mouths. After we'd eaten ourselves full of dinner, we all sat before the fire. The fuel was oak and fairly fallen, Yolthus wood. It smelled of home and winter and old times. We sipped mulled wine, and Eula brought me a mug of Keteyuld with plenty of honey. An old gray cat had come in from the cold. It sat on Eula's lap, purring contentedly, and cleaning the back of its head with its paw. When it turned to me and slowly opened its eyes, I was surprised to see that they were bright blue. It was only then that I thought again about the boy with the white hair I had seen in the street earlier. I told Minka what had happened and how strangely the boy had behaved. Oh, that was Aaron, said my brother. He's Eglas bastard. Who? I said. Everyone looked at me then as if I were the most ignorant bumpkin they'd ever laid eyes on. Eglos the Hunter, said Barbo. Sure, I know about Eglos, I said, not wanting to look like a fool. But I confess, the news that reaches us in Windsummer is sometimes missing a toe or two, if you catch my meaning. So that's what came of all the trouble. I'd heard something about an unnatural child. He's no different than any other, said Eula defensively. Oh, certainly is, said my brother. That boy gives me the prickles. 
How do you mean? I said. Everyone fell silent for a moment. Poor boy, said Eula, stroking the cat and shaking her head. The wind picked up outside. It pressed against the windows, whining like a dog that wants to be let in. Snow blew about beyond the panes. I thought for a moment that I ought to go out and put the big blanket on Stuna. He was like to get cold after such a long day's ride. They say he's got the wither touch, said Barbo, and made the Riverlander's charm against evil. Whatsoever he lays a hand on dies, sooner or later. You'll believe anything they tell you down the white fox, said my brother, rolling his eyes. It isn't anything like that. Didn't say it was, said Barbo. Just said that's what people say. That's nothing but what Maya Freerla's ladies send round the town about him, said Eula. And don't you go spreading it, Barbo. It's not nice. Again the wind blew hard outside. I felt its touch on my ankles, even through the door. Barbo shrugged his shoulders and took a sip of his wine. Eula was murmuring with her eyes closed, and I guessed she was saying a prayer for the boy. It was the old master builder who broke the silence. His mother was a whore, he said quietly. At the very mention of the word, the room seemed to get colder. And not the fun kind, joked my brother, but nobody laughed. Uh, he means... We all know what he means, said Eula, in a voice that was just above a whisper. An ice witch, said the old builder. The room went silent and still. The old man was staring into the fire. His eyes had taken on the wandering look of one preparing for a journey into the lands of his memory. She was one of those who made bitter compact with the cold, he said. As if in reply, a great gust of wind whistled through the streets outside and ran thundering against the window panes. It was so hard, and I so unaccustomed to the sound, that I jumped from my chair. It fell over behind me. The old cat leapt from Eula's lap and raced into the kitchen. Eula cursed under her breath. Laughing at my nerves and apologizing, I picked up my chair and sat down again. I ought to be on my way, said the old man. Master, said my brother, the night is young. It's cold and dark out there, and looks like we're in for a bit of a blow besides. You're not really going to go home in this, are you? Stay a while by the fire. My brother, who is a country fellow, clearly doesn't know the whole story. Why not dip into your purse and tell it to us, as you remember it? At this... Everyone turned to the old man. For a time, he did not speak, but only sat very still and seemed to be considering. Then he stirred 
and with hand gestures made us to understand that more wood should be placed on the fire. Then he bid us put out the pine cob and all the candles. When the room was dark and quite warm, even against the cold which crept in under the door, he stretched out his feet towards the fire, said the conventional charm for memory, and began to speak. Many years ago, he said, when Thane Hafnir's beard had no gray in it, and he was still a young man, a mysterious white woman came to Ulfgaard. Her skin was pale as first light on snow. Her hair was the dark blue of a frozen lake seen through the ice and perfectly straight. She wore clothing unlike any the people of the city had seen before. It was made from the skins of strange beasts and of curious, shiny linen woven with great skill and embroidered with extraordinary detail. Blue tarn pearls glittered upon her dress, and drops of tree quartz, and other jewels fancied by the goddess of winter hung about her waist, neck, ears, and wrists. Her eyes were narrow, but deep and full of wisdom. They were the color of steel. An enchanted feeling hung about her like an invisible mist as if she were not entirely of this world. She appeared at the gates of the castle in the midst of a great blizzard, and although she did not seem to be cold, she sought shelter. She was welcomed in without question, according to the ancient rites of guest friendship, and given food and drink, and a place by the fire in the great hall. When Thane Hafnir arrived, he was immediately struck by the stranger's otherworldly beauty and grace. Welcome to Oathguard, said the young Thane. First city of Evenhold, home of the Nargoth Nuttahowling and of the Emerald Steppes of Brestil. I am Thane Hafnir, confirmed by our people to look after the lands around here. I hope that the fire has warmed you well. Indeed said the woman, in a deep voice that seemed strange coming from so young and slender a speaker. The fire pleases me greatly. I see that you are burning birch, elm, and holly, whose boughs are sacred to the gods of winter. Their smoke can be tasted in the heavens, or so I have heard it said. Thane Hafnir bowed low. Noticing that his guest had touched neither food nor drink, he asked, Is something the matter with your food? I am sure, said the woman, that the food is excellent, but I am not hungry. This the thane found strange, since his guest seemed to have come from somewhere far away. Nevertheless, he had the food removed, 
and ordered more logs be placed on the fire. She smiled at him then, and for the first time in his life, he saw how captivating a face could really be. For this woman, though her gaze unnerved him, was so lovely that her very beauty seemed to occupy additional space in the room. He felt in awe of it, and bowed low once again to hide the fire in his cheeks. You may stay here with us as long as you like, said Hafnir. This time of year is sacred to Owaira, whose purview is hearth and home, and kindness to strangers. I would welcome you in gladly, even if you were not so beautiful as you are. The stranger smiled at him again, and laughed with a sound that was like the twinkling of a thousand tiny icicles shuffled loose from the branches of a fir tree. You flatter me, Thane Hafnir. It is not flattery, whispered the Thane, who found that his heart was racing, and he kept on speaking without thinking about what he said. For you are, I think, the most beautiful woman I have ever seen, more beautiful even than the goddess of love herself. At this, the stranger's eyes took on a glint of mischief and of great satisfaction, and she turned such a smile and a look on the young Thane that for a moment he forgot to breathe. Well, said the woman, you certainly know how to speak to a lady, but are you not afraid of Hyene's wrath? It's not often that the goddess of love loses out in a contest of beauty. Though, of course, we might make arguments that she is not the fairest among the gods. After all, I've always felt that her lips were a little too plump and her hair just a bit overdone. But I have heard that she can be a bit jealous. But by now, taking back the compliment was the furthest thing from Thane Hafnir's mind. The mysterious woman was turned just so in the firelight. It cast itself like a caressing hand upon the curve of her breast and the angle of her cheek. Hafnir's blood pounded in his ears. Why, said Hafnir, I'm not worried about that. If she were here, she would agree that you are the finest creature in all the world. Anyone can see that. But forgive me, what is your name? I am called Rostya, said the woman. Rostya, repeated Hafnir. He said it delicately, as if the name itself were a rare and precious thing he had to be careful with. I beg you to stay with us here until the snow has cleared. And so it was that the mysterious white woman remained in the house of Hafnir. Time passed. Before long, the two of them could be seen daily in one another's company, walking the long arcades, laughing together in the great cozy chairs before the fireplace, and generally making all the castle's attendants look knowingly at one another and smile. The day after Long Shadow, it was announced that Rostya was pregnant. But Hafnir and Rostya's time of happiness came very quickly to 
to an end. In celebration of the news of the pregnancy, Hafnir ordered a great feast at which he and Rostya were to be joined in marriage. The entire city was decked out in splendid decorations, with colorful drapes hung from every house, pine cobs burning in all the windows, and the thanes' own horses shod loosely in silver, so that the shoes might fall in the streets and be found as prizes by the citizens of Othgard. But the centerpiece of the entire celebration was to be a reading of the child's fortune. For this purpose, a great hukanether was built in the castle. The reflecting pool was ten times the size of those usually found in Atala. It filled almost the entire courtyard, and its waters were drawn from each of the seven rivers of the Sunat Hauden. On the day of the wedding, Hafnir sent for the greatest of the Nithidrin in Evenhold, an ancient seeress named Kalistra. She came down from the sacred seeing pool on the cliffs that is fed from the mighty torrent of Shushane and bears its name. With a train of two dozen attendants, all blindfolded, all chanting the sacred chant of unseeing, she arrived at the castle. All made way for her. It was midnight when she came into the courtyard. Everyone was waiting, arranged in ranks around the great pool. Even the balconies were filled with onlookers, whispering and craning their necks. At the head of the congregation stood the newly married couple. They were resplendent in their finest clothes and sparkling with jewels. A thousand voices fell silent as the veiled figure of the Neithid passed among the crowd and stepped into the pool. No one spoke as she walked to the exact center. Everyone then joined in the chant of unseeing, and all the lights were put out so that the stars showed themselves on the surface of the dark water. As the chant continued, the waters grew more and more still until they had become a flawless mirror of the constellations, God's mists, planets, and all the rest, and until the space between the stars seemed to radiate with a special significance. Finally, the chant ended with a single forceful note and a heavy silence descended on the courtyard. Thane Hafnir put forth his question. Honored Neithid, daughter of Aura, beloved of the Yosha who shine forth our fates, he said. What, I ask, lies in store for the child who grows in my wife's belly? Then the air became infused with silence and with stillness, and all held their breaths in anticipation. The ancient Neithid gazed into the surface of the water and saw. The child, she began in a deep, withered voice, who sleeps unborn in Rostya's womb will be... Here the Neithid fell silent, 
and all those around the courtyard leaned in and held their breaths. Later on, some would swear that in this pregnant pause they saw a faint flash of red in the reflected heavens. Some even claimed to have been looking skyward and to have seen it come from that constellation which we call the Lantern of Hyene. Hafnir, who saw no such thing, placed his hand on his wife's belly and waited. Finally, Callistra opened her mouth once more and spoke with great clarity. The child will be the cause of her father's eternal misery. Hafnir's blood ran cold. He prepared to speak out and ask something further, but the seer was not finished. Her life, for it will surely be a woman, will bring death and discord across all the land and it shall not end in her lifetime alone. Her children will be forever in strife, and her children's children shall grow to be the doom of kings and empires alike. So it is written in the space between the stars. So I, Callistra, first neathed of Shushanay, pronounce it. At last, the seeress fell silent. Hafnir flew into a rage. With curses on his lips, the Thane of Evenhold railed against the Neithid. Before the entire assembly, he accused her of taking bribes and of being under the influence of his enemies. His advisers and friends tried to still his tongue, but their words fell on deaf ears for Hafnir was like a man possessed. Taking up his sword, he sent Callistra and her retinue from the castle with the promise that if they returned, he would have their heads. After she had gone, the guests trickled slowly from the courtyard. They went with lowered voices and with looks of foreboding passing from one to the next. Only Rostya seemed strangely unperturbed. When it had all finished, she sat beside her new husband in the now empty courtyard, stroking his neck and whispering sweet comforts into his ear. But long after Callistra had returned to her cliffside fastness, the Neithid's words echoed in Thane Hafnir's mind. Each night as he lay beside his white wife, the prophecy haunted him. He stared at the ceiling and watched helplessly as one evil thought chased the next among the shadows. But the moment he drifted off, he was set upon by terrifying visions that left him shaking and drenched in icy sweat. Soon, he lost the ability to sleep except in fits and starts. His mind, untamed by lack of rest, began to grow gnarled, twisted, and confused. As the day of his child's birth drew near, 
he became more and more worried. The reason was that he looked around himself and saw all there was to lose. His thanedom was prosperous and peaceful. His people were happy and loyal. His wife was healthy, and every sign showed that the pregnancy was running its natural course. His neighbors across the veldt loved him. There seemed, truly, nothing to be worried about. And yet, and yet... One night, Hafnir shot Bolt upright in the bed. He dozed off for a moment, only to be caught in the weave of a terrible dream. In it, a monster stood upon his chest. It had cold, white eyes that shone in the dark, and a great, shadowy body that seemed to fill the entire room. An incredible weight crushed down upon him, fixing him in place. The nightmare creature bent towards him and opened a pair of slavering jaws. The thane squirmed and squirmed, but could not move. Then, just as the jaws reached his face, they stopped. From the beast's gullet, a head of hair appeared. It pushed itself out till a face emerged, blue-eyed, rosy-cheeked, and Hafnir saw that it was a little girl. Hello, father, she said. Come, why won't you come and embrace me? Waking in a twisted mess of wet sheets, he reached over to find his wife, but the bed lay empty beside him. Cries came from down the hall. Rostya was giving birth. His mind unhinged by the dream, Hafnir summoned his most faithful servant to his side, a lowlander by the name of Gotmard. In a trembling voice, Hafnir ordered Gotmard to take the infant high into the mountains and there destroy it. The gods will take pity on you, he said, for you do this terrible deed for a man who has not the strength to do it himself. Yet place this amulet around its neck, that the Lady of Winter will be merciful and speed the child through the Versi. And he took from around his own neck a moonstone pendant. It was a charm of Cyrn, whose breath is the frozen wind, and whose touch coats the world in frosty crusts of ice. As he passed the necklace to his servant, he winced, for he heard the first cries of the newborn coming from the chamber nearby. As if answering an unheard voice, he cried out, What choice do I have? The Nithid, who sees the works of the gods before they reach our world, left no room for interpretation. If the child is allowed to live, it will mean ruin for our people. It will mean ruin for our lands, and it will mean ruin for me. With that, Hafnir hid his eyes and threw out his hand toward the chamber door. Now go! he cried. 
Do not return to me until the terrible thing has been done, or I shall have your life instead. With the tiny baby wrapped in his arms, Gotmard left the sudden valley and went west into the mountains of the Haladrake. Five days and five nights he traveled, until at last he reached a high and barren slope where no trace of civilization could be seen in any direction. Well, little whaler, said Gotmard, for he was a good man and had grown fond enough of the babe to give it a nickname. I suppose this is as good a place as any. He laid the child down and drew his sword. Don't worry, I'll make it fast. You'll barely feel a thing. Yet when he held the flashing steel point to the infant's soft neck, Gotmard hesitated. He turned his ear and frowned. Could it be? In the frozen winds raking over the slope, he thought he had heard a whispered voice. When he looked around, however, he saw nothing but desolate fells in all directions. Gotmard was no fool. He knew that Vilgardir sometimes spoke with such voices. So did gods. But they could not be heard with the ears alone. Making a charm against misinterpretation, Gotmard knelt and listened in the way of the old ones. This time, the voice on the wind was clear. Leave the child, it said. And I shall do the rest. I know better than to resist the will of the gods, said Gotmard, sliding his sword back into its scabbard. Grateful to be relieved of his final duty, Gotmard left the babe where it lay and went back the way he had come. When he reached Oathguard, he found the thane sitting alone in the darkened armory and whispered in his ear that the child was dead. <laughs>